Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James, and as always, I'm joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. We should open this episode with an apology. It's been far, far, far too long since we last recorded a proper episode of the show. In fact, it's been two months and one day since anything went out on our podcast feed, although we did do a Twitter Spaces kind of a week into that stretch of stretch of time yeah we're, we're sorry we haven't been around it's just been very very busy for us in terms of our personal lives and and uni lives and whatnot but we are back and we're here to provide you with some political analysis at least that is the plan for today so Zach before we get into today's episode and of course today's episode is going to be relatively heavy given everything that's that's going on in the world at the moment. Before we get into that, Zach, how are you doing? It's been, it's been a long time since people have heard from you, so there was on your mind. Yeah, I know, it's, it's been ages, isn't it? And it's, oh, yeah, like you said, it's too much, like that, no, feel mental. It's two months was a very, very long time ago with everything that's gone on since, obviously. And yeah, so I, I always say this, whenever someone's asked me how I am, I go, I'm surviving, you know, everything's swimmingly well. Um, yeah, it's been, up down up down here but you how are you yeah good um it's the final three weeks of term ish i think it's three weeks now um i do i do a journalism course and the last month of it basically are, are called production weeks where we basically run our own newspaper with content exclusively made by us and run the website and make a print paper and, and all this kind of stuff um so it's incredibly hectic at the minute um i was at well i was at uh, i was sub editor last week chief sub so that was a bit stressful and very full-on um but but we did it we've got eight pages out and loads of stuff online so that was fun and challenging and exciting and i got to thursday and i was sat on the train and i was just like Ugh. I cannot even be bothered to get the bus home. I very almost got a, got a cap home from Rocket Station, which would have been the height of laziness. Um, but no, I sat on the bus and, and watched the start of the West Ham game until we got stuck in traffic, and then I walked halfway home. So it didn't quite go to plan. But no, I'm I'm doing good. Tired. Lots of work. Lots of writing going on about football and hockey and and all sorts. But I'm I'm glad that we're back. I'm glad that we're doing another podcast because I have I have missed doing the podcast, and I I, I do really love talking about politics and current affairs with you zach and i i, I really enjoy our interactions yeah. with our audience as well so so if you're here listening genuinely thank you so much for tuning in it really does mean a lot to us um and again genuinely sorry for being away for so long it's just been life essentially it's 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 kind of taken over unfortunately but that is the way of the world i suppose but Zach, we should probably go straight into this, of course. Everyone listening to the show will know what the situation is in Ukraine. I I feel like we don't need to do a two-month recap of of everything that's happened. Um, So in terms of the headlines, I think it's useful, just before we we start talking about it and before we start analysing everything, it it will be useful if I sit down and, and, and go through what's top on BBC News, for example, as, as we sit and discuss, I should say, it is currently Monday the 14th of March. It is quarter past seven in the evening. The top story on the BBC homepage currently is people flee horrifying Maripol conditions along escape route. 
um, an evacuation convoy of about 160 cars has managed to leave the besieged Ukrainian city, authorities say. I mean, the other leading stories on the website at the moment, Ukraine's battered cities are digging mass graves, how to sponsor Ukrainian refugees in UK homes, a video that says residents rescued after Kiev apartment block strike, tips on how to spot Ukraine fakes, and last but not least, drone shots for Mariupol devastated by fighting. So that's that's the situation as it is currently. First of all, Zach, what's been your whole, what's been your main takeaway from the past two months? I guess it, we, we can't do a what's called retention over the past seven days. That wouldn't really make much sense. But mm. what have been your main takeaway from the last two months? It feels like a huge moment in history. I know like it, it's always said that it's like a, a big-ish kind of event on the global stage. Oh, you know, this is a really big event, but this really is, isn't it? I remember actually being up at the time it started. So I think it was about three in the morning and uh, no word of a lie, I was literally just about to go to bed. And then the phone starts to kind of ping off with like loads of, you know, I've got loads of the um, the news outlets kind of tweet notifications on. And it says um, the Russians are going into Ukraine. You think, oh my God, that's a big deal, isn't it? It's a nation state invading another nation state in such a, blatant in such a vile way that it makes you stand stand up and go oh my god there's a really big evolving situation here and over the past few months it has progressed rapidly it sucks so many things and people into it and yeah i'm not even sure there's a main takeaway to have from the past few months because it's still an evolving situation even right now there's probably war discussions in the kremlin about what's the next move because clearly Putin's assumption that the whole thing could have been done in a weekend has clearly failed to come to pass and the Ukrainians have resisted such a really brutal attack from the Russians and it, of course bloodshed and destruction has followed and it just shows you that this is a threat that's not going to go away, it's not as if Russia's just going to park the tanks and it's all going to be fine because they're going to surrender and then no one's going to get involved. It's clearly going to suck everyone in. It's clearly an unfinished story, an unfinished event. So I think a takeaway could be that it this is a clearly serious historical event that's unfolding in front of our very eyes and it's something that shouldn't be trivialised or shouldn't be sort of discarded as a another just a, a geopolitical event that will sort itself out. It clearly won't. It's clearly a huge issue that is sucking everyone into it yeah and going back to january and i think it's useful considering we haven't haven't recorded the podcast since then to to go back to to when this all started actually that that's poor poor phrasing for me to be honest that's obviously not when this started this has been a situation that's been ongoing for i was going to say months but years obviously Russia invaded Crimea in, in 2014 and to all intents and purposes the world pretty much continued as it had been before Crimea was invaded by Ukraine. Um, this, isn't, this isn't new in a sense but obviously it's taken a very dramatic shift and I think that one of the most striking things about the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
and Russia's aggression in Ukraine is that a lot of pundits kind of stood back and these are experienced kind of foreign policy analysts in the media sat back and said, no, Putin, he's not going to, he's not going to really invade because that would be strategically a bad idea. And yet he did. And then it was, well, he's not going to do this. And then he did. Um, And he's not going to do that. And he did. So I think people need to, I guess the point I want to make is that when, when somebody or when some government shows you who they are, you should probably believe them. And I think in this case, we now have undeniable proof of what kind of leader, what kind of person Putin is. Um, And perhaps that should have been obvious before Ukraine was invaded uh, last month. Perhaps, I say perhaps, it definitely should have been the case that, that we fought that before this month. But in a way, it kind of swept up from nowhere, like things that had been relatively unproblematic for decades, like London being dubbed London grad because of the amount of Russian money kind of washing through the through the city's um, housing market, for example, like that was just that was just an accepted reality in British politics in British life. That was a thing like Boris Johnson's relationship, the prime minister's relationship with with Russian oligarchs was just a thing. Mm. It, it, like, it was casually accepted across the world, wasn't it? It wasn't as if there was an exception. You know, we all know the, the previous president, Donald Trump, had a very, very complicated relationship, shall we say, with Russia. It, it's been like that kind of the elephant in the room for not just the past five years, probably the last 20 years, that with each serious escalation, so obviously there was the escalation in Georgia in 2008, right on the eve of the Olympics in China, that it started to become quite clear what Vladimir Putin's intentions were. And then in 2014 with Crimea, and it's it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a climax in 2022 with Ukraine, because I don't, I, I seriously believe that Putin's intentions are, are far more nefarious just to say it's step by step, it's clearly a methodical thing that he's doing. But yeah, you're right, it's like, it's, it's been like accepted for a long time and no one's really done anything about it until until now, which is of course it's better late than never, obviously, with action, but at the same time it's it's disgraceful that kind of he's being empowered in a way, I think, to, to do what he's doing. And it's only now that several nations are standing up and saying, Well, that's unacceptable, we need to do something about it as a collective community. And I think the important point to make as well, and it's a very, very important distinction to draw here, is that we're talking about people directly connected to the regime in Russia. We're not talking about your friendly Russian neighbour who lives next door and, and, and makes you bake goods and is an upstanding, lovely member of, of society. Like, it's a really important point to make. As, as with any significant moment in history where you have a quote-unquote good guy and a quote-unquote bad guy like normal russian people aren't aren't responsible for this this is this is a situation that is entirely out of their control and i think this is this is where it gets really complicated so i'm going to go off on a a slight hockey 
tangent. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I, I report on ice hockey, I report on the Washington Capitals. Um, the Washington Capitals, their captain is a guy called Alex Ovechkin. If you if you follow ice hockey, I, I apologise for how kind of how kind of simple this analysis is going to be because you'll know this already. But Alex Ovechkin is the best Russian player perhaps ever. He could be the best hockey player ever. He is like the Lionel Messi of ice hockey. Like he's he's that good. He's that prestigious. He's that much of a big deal. This is this is the kind of level that we're talking about. Well, a couple of years ago, he had a web. He launched a website. He launched the social media campaign called Team Putin or Putin Team. I can't remember which way around it was. Um, his his Instagram account, if you go and look at it now, is still the profile picture is still a photo of Alex Ovechkin with Vladimir Putin. And obviously, when the invasion happened last month, the immediate questions that the press wanted to ask Ovechkin were very very simple, like what what do you make of this? Are you going to condemn what's happening in Ukraine? What are you going to say? And it took a couple of days for for him to appear in front of the press. And what he said was kind of disappointing, kind of predictable, kind of, well, what else could he say? Because essentially what he said was that he didn't, he doesn't want there to be war anywhere, whether that be between Russia, whether that be with Ukraine, whether that be any country. He said that he wanted the situation to end soon. He said all of those kind of things, but he didn't condemn Putin. He didn't He didn't say that the war needed to necessarily stop. Not least that particular war needed to stop. He didn't talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine in those terms, for instance. So basically he, he hedged what he said, because we have to remember from an outside perspective, looking at like political dissent in the UK, like in theory, at least, Zach could go outside Downing Street and hold up a sign that says Boris Johnson is insert whatever. And that probably, as long as it's not hate speech, would be would be fine. If you stood outside the Kremlin with a sign that said, I mean, we're seeing these clips all the time that said, stop the war. You're seeing these people kind of hold into police vans heavy handedly and taken off to God knows where. So people... And of course, I'm not. I'm not trying to suggest that Alex Ovechkin is a victim in any way here, but there needs to be nuance in the conversation because it's incredibly difficult for people who live in what is have family members in what is effectively a police state to speak out against the government that they had previously been very closely aligned with, because the consequences are very different. It's not like criticize the government here; it'll be fine. Criticize the government in Russia, and people have seen what's what's happened previously. Um, I can't actually remember where that tangent started with, Zach. Could you maybe remind me? I think it was something about condemning the war. Um, but you, you I mean, that would make sense, yeah. You, you, you um, touched on a point about dissent. Um, it was only very recently that usually Russia's information machine is actually called misinformation machine, shall we say, is usually quite potent, it's usually quite powerful, but one kind of glaring thing in this whole conflict and if we are going to do a takeaway from what has happened over the past two months is that the russian machine in that respect has kind of failed hasn't it because the russian propaganda machine has kind of fell flat on its back because you're seeing every day now it's the ukrainian kind of intelligence that are telling us what's happening and we're believing that and then it's being corroborated by the us and some uk some european 
And you know that the Russian information machine is kind of stuttering because they've introduced this law, this is what I was talking about dissent just now, where I think fake news or news that they don't like, protests they don't like, is now you know punishable by 15-year prison sentence. It's incredibly dark, the direction they're going. And I know they've gone in this direction for a long time, but the new stringent laws that have been proposed in Russia, it's now law, is extremely dystopian, extremely dark, but it's a kind of it, it's an instrument of their war machine that they know they're not getting the message that they want out, and that's kind of flagging the effort in Russia. You're seeing people in uh, seeing some sort of Russian soldiers, I think, heading into Ukraine and surrendering straight away because they don't want to be part of this war. You see, you're seeing Vladimir Putin trying to tell people, well. I don't want your children to die. You know, this is not my fault, or it clearly is. And it's we're seeing we're seeing the footage for ourselves that you know, the Russian effort is really, really poor compared to the Ukrainian resistance. And it is this kind of cycle of what's next. That's why at the top of the segment I was saying that it's such an evolving situation that we can't even guess what Putin's gonna do anymore. That's how bleak this situation actually is. We don't know what he'll do. He's not going to play by the rules as such. So, for example, he won't attack here. That That's not possible. And then in a couple of days, he, he will then do that. And it's like, oh, we can't predict him anymore. What's going to happen next? I think that's a really dangerous part of this whole conflict. Yeah, for sure. I, the point that I, I was I was making was, yeah, as you say, like it's, it's incredibly incredibly authoritarian um we're not talking about kind of a western standard of, of of free speech whatever that phrase really means in reality we're talking about something completely different and you speak about the information war you speak about propaganda russia is losing this hands down we're not we're not talking about militarily we're talking about kind of information in terms of propaganda for example this is an email that was sent again. I'm going to go back to hockey because hockey is kind of the, one of the national sports in Russia, and it's it's, it's something that I report on. Um, so the KHL, which is the Continental Hockey League, spelled spelled with a K for some reason, um, sent this email around to its member clubs today. And I should say that the KHL did have teams in Latvia and Finland, which have since withdrawn from the competition for fairly self-explanatory reasons. So this is how the email goes. Of course, this is translated from Russian to English. Dear colleagues, we're going through a difficult time today. A lot of information is being posted in all information resources every minute. And unfortunately, very often it is implausible news and fake. The support of their own during the war is the only possible reaction of a normal person. We ask you to support this action and work out with the fans the issue of supporting our army. We are sending coordinated campaign posters. They can be printed and distributed in the form of leaflets, flyers, flags, just A4 sheets, uh, kind of the list of formats applicable goes on. Please note that this promotion is mandatory and subject to reporting. The day after the game, all reporting information, including photo and video reports, in brackets, at least four photos, as well as a brief text description of the event, including the materials involved, must be submitted to the league's office by 10 o'clock Moscow time. Like this isn't an example of a state that is is winning a war and is willing kind of backing from its own people. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important point 
to stress and going back to my previous kind of ramble the important distinction to draw is between normal people who many of whom are horrified by this and people who are responsible for this and like how do we treat them and how how do we separate the two groups while showing support and solidarity again whatever that means in this context to to victims in ukraine and of course they are they are the true victims in this situation i guess if we draw away from the discourse which i guess is kind of what we've been talking about to to kick off the show and talk about the the quote-unquote west's response to this obviously the main request from Zelensky, the, the the Ukrainian president, is for NATO essentially to shut the skies above Ukraine to implement the no-fly zone. And the reason why NATO members are refusing to do this is because if they were to implement a no-fly zone, that would involve shooting Russian planes out of the sky. And of course, if a NATO member shoots a Russian plane out of the sky, you're essentially starting a war between NATO and Russia, which for obvious reasons is, is suboptimal to say the least. Could the West be doing more? Like, are sanctions enough? Are is are our neighbouring countries taking enough refugees? I, I know certainly Britain isn't, but but what have you made to the international response in terms of trying to take steps to either support Ukraine or to damage Russia? In terms of the response, I think of course the immediate impact of Ukrainian refugees. It's been very, it's exactly how the economic ones on Russia has kind of worked as well. It's been very asymmetric across the board. So especially to start with, there was no coordinated refugee scheme. And obviously, in terms of comparing the European response to our response, you're going to get a certain discourse, shall we say, about wouldn't it be very helpful to be part of this community that can allow refugees to pass through all uh, responding countries but we're not part of that anymore I'll leave it at that on that one but in terms of the refugee response we're getting there in terms of the UK it's been very painful to watch though because clearly the government haven't done enough so far and they're continuing not to do sufficiently enough so at the moment you've got the sponsorship scheme where I think hosts get £350 a month uh, Ukrainian refugees can come over to the UK. I think they can live, work and whatever here for three years. I think they're given an X, I think it's £10,750 to start with. It's something like that in terms of making sure they get settled in wherever they are. We're getting there, but it's clearly we need to go faster like countries such as Poland. I think Poland's response has been exceptional. I think they've taken on the most refugees so far. But in terms of the economic ones, we, I think we're doing as much as we can. So clearly the ruble is completely crippled and the Russian economy is starting to feel the bite of being ejected from the Swiss system, from not being able to trade its sovereign debt on the US, UK, European markets and even Asian markets. But in terms of military, this is like the three-pronged approach. You've obviously got how you're helping refugees, how you're punishing Russia economically. But it's again, it's this elephant in the room. What about the military side of it? Zelensky himself has said, look, we don't need diplomacy here. We need arms to fight these people. And Russia's already starting to threaten countries such as us, in China, even with the slightest help of some arms, as to 
well, we see this as a an escalation because you're giving Ukrainians certain arms to kill Russians. And that gets us into a really difficult debate. I think that you'd need five shows, not let alone a segment on one show to talk about kind of the nuances of that. I think the military response is very difficult. And I think we're doing enough without causing a world war. Because clearly, like you say, if we were to impose no flies on Ukraine, we'll be vaporised within a week. Oh, oh, actually, no, that's actually quite optimistic. Vaporised in three days, because clearly a Russian jet will go across Ukraine. We'll have no option to shoot it down. And we know that Putin's unstable enough to use nuclear weapons. A lot of intelligence, both UK, US, and also EU intelligence sources, have already said that they're convinced that Putin totally would use nuclear weapons if he wanted to, if he thought that was necessary. So it's a difficult one to analyse because it's a three-pronged approach. We're getting there in the first two, and obviously the third one, though, is a lot more difficult to unpick and see where, where feasibly we can go without causing a, another Iraq or even a World War Three. There's a lot to obviously unpack there. I, I, I guess I'll approach it the same way. So you, you spoke about the three prongs being how we're responding to refugees, how we're responding to uh, how like, economic sanctions and militarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to start with, and this is kind of carried on, I really found it quite sickening how the, the British government was gaslighting us being kind of voters in the UK, people in the UK, but obviously more importantly, people trying to flee Ukraine with all this, utter twaddle about something that the government often says is that our like this is this is paraphrasing the uk has world beating desire to do x like they'll they'll use the phrase world beating or or world leading or or, or whatever it might be um to describe their their desire to help in a situation their desire to do something they want to do something um, rather than actually doing the thing that they say they have desire to do. So that was a big issue initially. And I mean, last week, it was still the case, or it might have been the week before that, rather, where the UK had only accepted 50 Ukrainian refugees, which is just obscene, isn't it, really? Let's be completely honest about that. Like, the number of people being moved across the country and, like, fleeing the country is just absolutely enormous. And the UK has ended up with 50 people. And the hoops that these poor people had to jump through to get to the UK was even more obscene. Like, mm. like the way that, so initially the way that the system worked was you had to be a very, very close relative to qualify as a relative. And then and, you had to go to Lille or somewhere. So you couldn't even get processed straight away. They made it immensely bureaucratic, didn't they? I think. Which given this is the government of global Britain and Brexit Britain and cutting all of the, the, the red tape. You would think that they'd want to be a little bit more fleet footed on this. And again, public opinion, the UK government is behind on public opinion in terms of Ukrainian refugees, for whatever reason, and we can get into some of, some of the things underpinning this and why this is again, a little bit concerning, a little bit hypocritical, a lot concerning and a lot hypocritical, like the British public, 
according to the polls and according to polling data that we've seen recently, is very supportive of the UK taking more Ukrainian refugees, much more than the UK government is currently willing to do. Um, so there's an element of the government being poisoned by its own populism to the extent where it's unable to now see what would actually be popular. Mm. So that they're talking in these, and I think we often talk about Boris Johnson, per, like B- Boris Johnson, the individual politician, rather than Boris Johnson's government. And we talk about his, some, like some people say, does he have liberal instincts? Does he, what is he? Is Boris Johnson a populist? Is he a liberal? Is he even really a conservative? What, what does this man actually stand for? And I think one of the things that I had on the podcast recently, I think this was on Rory Stewart's new podcast with... Um, That's a great podcast, isn't it? Is it the one with him and Alice Campbell? I did. I've, I've told you to listen to it so many times, like, so I'm glad you took the recommendation. Yeah, it's great. Um, one of them made the point of saying, well, Johnson kind of does have liberal instincts. I think it was Rory Stewart who said this. Um, so he will say good things like, oh, yeah, we have a huge desire to help lots of Ukrainian refugees. So he'll say the thing that he thinks is liberally and morally correct. And then he'll turn around and instruct his ministers not to do that thing because he thinks it will be electorally unpopular with the people he's trying to win votes from. Um, So, yeah, I'm kind of sick of the gaslighting there. In terms of sanctions, the UK government moved incredibly slowly against Russian money in the UK. Um, And you have to ask the question, is that because... Russian money is just so influential in our I was going to say in our political life and our social life just in, just in British society as a whole like it's it's in a situation where it's a little bit uncomfortable really in terms of how can the government respond to this and again I, when we were talking earlier Zach I, I got up the news story about how David Cameron and Boris Johnson played a tennis game for a £160,000 donation with a Russian donor who just so happened to be connected to a former finance minister of the Kremlin. Like, stuff like this. This is just such commonplace in British politics, especially in Conservative politics, um, that I think it made the government's response feel, at least certainly feel, whether it was in reality or not, I think that's more debatable, but it certainly felt sluggish. Um in terms of military response, it's it's really impossible, isn't it? Because as you say, I think we've got to the point now where we can't say, oh, Vladimir Putin wouldn't wouldn't do this. Russia wouldn't do whatever people think Russia might do next. Because Putin's now in a position now where he can't step back. Like if we look at this from a from a Putin Kremlin perspective, you say uh, with the facts on the ground as we know them from kind of our perspective. So I, I appreciate that it's somewhat contradictory. But you look at the situation and you go, okay, the war isn't going particularly well from a Russian perspective. They've, they've made gains. They haven't made gains as quickly as they thought they would. They haven't taken Kharkiv or, or Kiev, for example. Um, but they're gaining ground from the north, from the south, and um, from the east as well. And you look at it and you go, okay, we've been met with lots of resistance from people in Ukraine. Like you see amazing like displays of courage of people just like walking past Russian tanks with with the tanks firing into the air to get the people to go away, like waving Ukrainian flags. And I just think, goodness, it's just just incredible. Anyway, you look at it, you look at it from a Russian military strategic perspective, and you go, okay, it's not going great, but it could be worse. Mm. But 
the way that he's sold the war to people in Russia is that, well, we need to protect the, 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 the Russian people in Ukraine. So he can't capitulate. Like he can't, he can't just walk away and act as if it never happened because obviously it did. And again, there'd be an information war about whether or not what happened and when happened and who was responsible for it. But there's no way that he can negotiate really that in any way, shape, or form that would be easily portrayed as Russia losing this war. So, what options are available to Putin um, to back out? And I honestly don't think there are any that would be acceptable to the other side. Like a negotiating position that the Kremlin could maybe take at this point and, and maybe be able to sell to people back home is well we we being Russia in this in this scenario um we're able to protect the two quote unquote separatist regions in the east able to solidify kind of Russia's hold over Crimea and then that's that perhaps that would be acceptable I sense it probably wouldn't be because they're too far gone at this point anyway. But even if you took that position it's not a strong one to take. It's not an easy one to take. And it's not one that I think the Ukrainian government would would accept anyway. So from that position, it then becomes somewhat impossible to back out. And then we're in this really scary situation where it's impossible to de-escalate. And you spoke about this earlier, Zach. So you, you basically said that, well, if there is a, a military exchange between NATO and Russia, I can't I can't remember the, the phrasing that you used. Exactly, but you suggested that there'd be a nuclear exchange. I, I think was the premise you were going with. Basically, would get vaporized. Yeah, that was really it. That was, that was, that was, a, a thermonuclear war would be one of those long drawn out things like World War Two is completely untrue, isn't it? We know the consequences of a nuclear fallout. That's why the West, the USSR, back in the night, have tried desperately to avoid it for decades because they know that. It's mutually assured destruction, isn't it? If one nuclear weapon goes off, then we're in really, really difficult territory. On the other hand as well, it doesn't have to be nuclear. There's all, also discussion that Vladimir Putin could be using chemical weapons akin to what Bashar al-Assad used in Syria, which would also provoke huge, as there already is, huge humanitarian crisis in Ukraine if, God forbid, chemical weapons are used over there as well. And that was a point that I wanted to ask you about, basically. That, that was where my very long preamble was going. Um, mutually assured destruction, so MAD theory, MAD theory, is essentially a theory of nuclear deterrent. So the idea is that if one side has nuclear weapons, and the other en enemy side has nuclear weapons, then neither will use the nuclear weapons because they know that if either one uses the weapons, then they're both going to be mutually assured destruction. So the theory goes. But the issue that we've got really, and this is why the whole nuclear, nuclear weapon debate is, is currently so problematic, is that we're in a situation now where the West can't really directly enter the military conflict here because they're rightly concerned that Putin might push the button. That's at least my reading of this. So, in fact, the nuclear deterrence that the West has built up isn't so much as a deterrence, it's actually the thing that's preventing the West from, from intervening. 
But do you think that's a, a fair read of the situation? Whether, whether or not it would be right or wrong for the West to be militarily involved in this conflict is not really the point that I'm making. It's more the point that even if the West wanted to put boots on the ground or planes in the sky or whatever it might be, they can't because they're, in the West's view, they look at Putin and say, might he actually do it? We didn't think he'd invade Ukraine, so maybe he would have pushed the button. He's already started that kind of aggression for a long time. So I think this was a couple of weeks ago. Um, he decided to tell his kind of nuclear heads in Russia. I think that's an extremely lazy phrase, but I can't remember the exact thing. But he was essentially bringing it to putting them on standby, which obviously isn't the same as doing it. But you know what I mean? Kind of, He's trying to show the West that he's serious about this. He does... Tries, he's trying to say, I'm meaning what I'm saying, I'm just not doing it yet. And yeah, there is a lot of intelligence now that is suggesting that he's ready to do that. Russia clearly have a nuclear capability that could devastate a large part of this planet. And yeah, I think the more unpredictable, the more deranged he's become, the less predictable it has, has been. Kind of, there is that, that thought, oh my god, if we put boots on the ground, what is there to say that? instead of using nukes, you might just use nuclear weapons on our own troops. And then no matter how much there's an information war going on, can you just imagine the leaders of the, of the Western world trying to explain to the people in their respective countries why their troops are being sent out to Ukraine or wherever and have been mustard gassed? It, it's that unimaginable prospect of, of even that happening, let alone a nuclear fallout. And yeah, and if you look at, I remember the build-up to to the invasion, that kind of, that really chilling speech by Putin that essentially made out the case for Ukraine to just not exist as a country at all. That's the type of person we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with a a tin pot dictator like we have in the past. We're dealing with someone who has this worldview that certain countries shouldn't exist and that his actions are justified because Russia was, I never forget this phrase, was robbed of the opportunity because of the collapse of the USSR. That's the kind of person we're dealing with here. We're dealing with someone who probably will go to many extreme lengths. And it makes that military case extremely difficult to make out. It's imperialism, isn't it? Mm. I mean, very, I saw this point made on Twitter the other day and I kind of rolled my eyes. Technically, it isn't imperialism, some would argue, because imperialism is about the end stage of capitalism. And people would argue, academically speaking, that Russia isn't at that point in in their capitalist cycle, whatever. That's not at all what I mean by the word imperialism. What I mean by imperialism is the idea that Russia doesn't need to respect the territorial, legal, social sovereignty of of another state that is wholeheartedly accepted as a member of the international community by every other country on the planet um, and wants to make that territory its citizens its own that's what I mean by imperialism I'm not I'm not citing a an academic theory about the future of capitalism for example I just thought I'd make that clear um, that's the problem isn't it it's and th- this is why this poses even broader geopolitical issues this is why this broad poses serious questions about the future of other parts of the world as well. Like the obvious example, the obvious um, parallel to be drawn is 
China and Taiwan, because it's, it's obviously very well known that the People's Republic of China sees Taiwan as rightfully Chinese. It sees it as being China. It doesn't see it as being Taiwan. And the question would be, if Russia is able to take Ukraine and act as though Ukraine never existed and that Ukraine is just Russia, then what kind of precedent does that set for other states in other parts of the world? So that's something to think about, I would say. And on a similar note, we're now in a in terms of the West and in terms of American head, uh, this is getting very kind of political science on us today. <laughs> but if, if we're talking about American hegemony, the idea that America is basically the country that oversees world politics, obviously we don't have a world government. We don't have one thing, one organization that's in charge of how the world works. We live essentially in anarchy insofar as there's no, there's, there's no world government is what I'm saying. I don't know why I'm getting tied up in, in my politics degree. Um, the idea is, the point that I'm trying to make is that previously America acting on behalf of the West has been very aggressive in making sure that other states haven't been able to take, to broaden their spheres of influence. So the idea is that America is the only true regional hegemon, which means that it's able to dominate essentially the whole world. Whether that's good or bad, I, I'm not really here to debate at this point, that's just kind of world politics as it, as it currently looks. The question that we have now is that the American public is very, very reluctant at this point to have any involvement in actual wars. So we saw this with Afghanistan, where the American public overwhelmingly, before the pullout from Afghanistan, was in favour of the pullout of Afghanistan because they wanted to get their American troops home, which seems, removed of all context, like a fairly valid domestic policy goal. This is something that had been on the American political agenda since Barack Obama was in the White House, for example. So this is this is something this is a long held view from the United States. If you fast forward now and you look at polling, I think there was a Gallup poll released today that said the majority of respondents of, of the poll said that they supported the introduction of a no-flow zone over Ukraine. However, from the same poll when the question was asked, would you support a no-fly zone over Ukraine if it were to cause a war between the US and Russia? Overwhelmingly, the answer to the question was no. And of course, a no-fly zone in reality would lead to a war between Russia and the West. So we have an issue now where domestic political considerations, and again, I'm not saying whether this is good or bad, I'm just, I'm just analysing the situation as I kind of see it. Domestic policy considerations make it very, very hard for democratic states in the West to act in a way that would prevent Russia from, from doing anything. Like America can't necessarily get militarily involved in this because it would be overwhelmingly unpopular with its own people. So are we now at a point in our political history, in our political landscape, our global political landscape, where authoritarian states essentially have the upper hand in these kind of things because they can act more aggressively and the West kind of has its hands tied behind its backs because of its democratic, liberal makeup. And again, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that it would be a good idea for the West to to get rid of democracy. That's absolutely not what I believe at all. Get rid of liberalism again. That's not not what I believe at all. But is that is that playing a role? I think there's a huge big picture things 
to consider. I know, I know we've kind of gone a little bit meta away from from the situation on the ground in Ukraine, but if you're listening to this podcast, that's hopefully what you're here to look for anyway. So ho- hopefully you're enjoying the show. Do let us know at Midfield Politic on Twitter. I was talking for a while there, Zach. So I guess I'll just I'll just throw it back over to you. Um, and then when you've wrapped up, I think we should talk about soft power and we should talk about sport. Soft power and sport? I don't know what you're talking about there. No, no such thing exists. Um, yeah, you're right. Is it? That this is like the kind of the art of this situation where it's evolving so quickly. I think, in a way, and this is where I'm a bit sympathetic towards government to have this kind of coordinated response to Vladimir Putin. It's not as simple as it as it is. I think I don't think when the invasion started, anyone's policy would be the exact same as it was when all of this started. I think it's been such a situation where yeah, I I think I've already I've I've already wrapped up my thoughts on it that we've got a three pronged approach here. We're getting there in all of them, but we are appearing dangerously close to a, a seminal moment in this conflict. I think there was a report last night, I think by the Times and it's been verified by a lot of other media that Putin is ready to take the conflict very dangerously close to NATO territory and you're seeing he's sizing it up again I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to happen or anything but you can see the kind of the gravity of this situation is increasing day by day there's going to need to be another coordinated response very quickly and very sharply and it has to strike at the heart of Russia but again we don't know what's going on in Russia because we've sealed them off so in this country for example, we finally took off Russia today so the five viewers of that in the UK must be devastated that they can't watch Russia today right but there's an idea that we it, it is a sort of another iron curtain moment isn't it we don't know exactly what's going on in Russia because we've kind of shut Russia out rightly economically but as well in terms of we don't know what's going on in Russia we we can't predict their next move because we shut them off to such an extent where we're hoping that because the rubles collapsed because the economy is absolutely ruined that that's the end of the matter it clearly won't be we're dealing with someone who is genuinely unhinged so yeah the next move I think so difficult to judge and by that virtue we can't sit here and say this is what's going to happen next time we do a podcast because it, it's that's the gravity of this situation. And that's why, in a way, it's kind of been a blessing that we've not done the podcast for the past four weeks. Because I think our opinions have been drastically changing episode by episode, probably minute by minute, because it was changing with the times. Can we talk about Chelsea? <laughs> that was where I wanted to take this. Well, it's been very quiet, hasn't it, over the past couple of weeks at Chelsea? Look, um, very quiet. <laughs> well, yeah. So everyone listening to the show will know, I assume, the situation with Chelsea. So Roman, Abram- Roman Abramovich, the guy who, who owns the club, was sanctioned last week um, for his close relationship to the Kremlin, essentially. That plunged the club into crisis um, because the accounts were frozen. There was talk about the team not being able to make it to Lille for their Champions League match there was talk well the club aren't able to sell any tickets they're not able to sell any merchandise they're literally only allowed to play football matches and let fans in who have already bought tickets so that's the situation in terms of Chelsea I guess 
I'm not even really sure what I want to ask you about this because, and we should make this very, very. I know you'll make this clear when when I ask you the question, but obviously, we, Chelsea fans aren't the victims in this no. situation. Of course, they're not. Obviously not. Uh, but Abramovich, a Russian oligarch, played has played a significant role in like Chelsea fans' lives. Like you don't remember, you, you won't remember pre-Abramovich Chelsea, for example. You're a Chelsea fan. Mm. So I guess with your Chelsea hat on, what has the past couple of couple of weeks been like? Like, how does this affect your relationship with the club? Does it affect your relationship with the club? How? Do, yeah, I just, just try and make sense of it from a Chelsea perspective, I guess. It, it, ever heard the phrase that chickens are coming back home to roost? It's kind of obviously in term, in a footballing sense as a Chelsea fan. You can't, well, you can, but you know, you know exactly where I'm going to go with this. You can't exactly say a bad word about him in the footballing sense. Just strip everything apart. I know it's very difficult to do that, but strip everything apart in strictly a football sense to coming in 2003, save the club from going bust. The rest is literally history. In that sense, you kind of put everything else to the back of your mind because, quite frankly, your club's winning trophies every year. You have a state-of-the-art academy. You have a hugely successful women's team that are pioneers in that game. You're essentially the top of the tree, top of the table, at the big table. And things feel fine. And then, obviously, as time has gone on, Abramovich's character... Abramovich is a very shady character at Chelsea Football Club. For someone who regularly used to appear at football games, you never really heard much from him. He's a very private individual. And I think a lot of Chelsea fans kind of price that in. And it's that horrible phrase that originates from Laura Coon's work about Boris Johnson. But people price certain things in with Abramovich. And as a result, whether we like it or not, his association with Vladimir Putin has always been up for debate as to the extent. It's quite clear there has been some sort of relationship with Vladimir Putin in the past, in the present, and clearly in the future. But again... Not every single fan that goes to the Chelsea game has a geopolitical worldview where if you put them on the spot about Roman Abramovich, they can give you a big appreciation of, well, Abramovich as well come from this, but my team are winning games, so it doesn't really matter. But, yeah, the last couple of weeks has just been a complete, complete mindfuck, shall we say. It's As soon as things started to get quite serious, we knew that Abramovich's position at the club was clearly in doubt. And it started from him trying to relinquish control of the club to a charitable foundation to make it look like, oh, I'm giving the club over. Uh, I can now, you know, in the best interest of the club, i.e. I'm probably going to get sanctioned because of this, but Chelsea can't get sanctioned. Clearly, that view did not hold for much. I think it lasted three days. And then midweek, right before a game, he puts the club up for sale. And then you think, well, that's it. We can move on. We can say thank you to Roman Rich and he can ride off in the sunset as a huge hero and that's it. And then I think about a week or so later, he gets sanctioned and it turns out that he's still company that he has significant control over. In the words of the sanction regulations, may or may not have uh, supplied arms to the Russian army in the form of tanks. 
And I think that changes the game. That that makes it an issue that Chelsea fans, they like it or not, have to confront it. For the last few years, no one really cares to ask about Abramovich's wealth and where it came from because it didn't really matter. It clearly does now because this is why Chelsea are in this position. And it's an uncomfortable fact that his relationship, his alliance with Vladimir Putin has meant that Chelsea have been sanctioned because we are an asset of Roman Abramovich's. And he's been sanctioned because of his company, the company he did take shares out of to give to himself on the eve of the invasion. I mean, you don't have to be a Miss Marvel to put it put two and two together, right? And as a result, a lot of Chelsea fans think are beginning to feel deeply uncomfortable about the situation they're in. And of course, they're not the victims here. No one is saying that. But the conversations around Stamford Bridge are very uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of fans because it, it's a distressing time for them. They don't know what's going to happen with um, with everything. Everyone's solidarity is, of course, with Ukraine. And now we are confronting the reality that we have been priced in with an owner who's been very shady for 20 years. And it's starting to come out about how shady he really was. And it's textbook sports washing, essentially. I guess, and like I, I thought about this, I, I've thought about this a lot recently. And initially, the question that I asked myself was, "Is this sports washing?" Because obviously, we were too young to remember when Abramovich bought the club back in what was it, two thousand and three? Yeah, in two thousand and three. But anyway, I can't, I've always kind of looked at Abramovich, and this is of course completely naive, as somebody who just bought Chelsea on a bit of a whim as a because he likes football and he wanted to win some trophies. That was always the perspective that I had on Abramovich until more recently. Um but but you now are in a situation where you go, well why why were we so naive as to to think that? And I think a lot of people viewed Abramovich like that. They kind of viewed him and again this is completely ridiculous as some kind of benevolent billionaire who just wanted to win some football matches. But in reality, it's it's textbook sports washing because it, you, you look at the game on Saturday between Newcastle and Chelsea and there was a flag at the in, the colours of, in the colours of the Russian flag mm. um, that was like supportive of, of Abramovich's time with the club. You have people outside the stadium saying things like, well, it's not Chelsea fans' fault. Like, why are we being punished? And to an extent, they are correct. Like, it's not Chelsea's fans' fault. They should be able to buy tickets to go and watch away games. I kind of see the logic behind that. But Abramovich, for the past 20 years, essentially, has used a major footballing institution in the UK as something to completely clean his... Well, not completely clean, but to a a very, very large extent, to, to clean his reputation, to launder his reputation in... In England, in particular, but I, I would imagine across across much of the world because of his role and because of his position with Chelsea. Exactly. And I think just before I throw it back to you, Zach, I'll throw it back to you on this point. Does that hold? And I feel like we've learned a lot since then. So, like in two thousand and three, that wasn't how it was framed. It was framed as, "Do we really want this foreigner pumping loads of money into English football? It will ruin the game." That was that. I think that was kind of the logic at the time. Now, when we see clubs like Newcastle being purchased by essentially an arm of the of the Saudi government, 
I think we're a little bit more wise up to the fact that sports washing is a thing and it's it's something to to be taken seriously. So I guess post Ukraine invasion, post Abramovich sanctions, what does this all say for the future of football as a whole? And a question that I asked the Manchester City fan earlier today, I'm working on, on, on an article about this. I basically said, is football now unsalvageable? Because it feels like it feels unsalvageable in the sense that it is a wash with morally corrupt billions, essentially. I think the horse bolted a long, long time ago. And the biggest monument was having the World Cup in Russia in 2018, weeks after the screw out poisonings on UK soil. And that was when it was kind of, if you subscribe to a long-term theory about Abramovich, that was the beginning of the end of Abramovich at Chelsea. But apparently since that moment when he was denied his tier one, well, his tier one visa wasn't going to be renewed, therefore he couldn't get into the country essentially. Um, that was the beginning of the end that Chelsea were going to be sold as a result a long, long time ago. But yeah, it plays to this point that I think that the horses bolted about football a long time ago. You had Russia and Qatar back-to-back World Cups being awarded the most prestigious prize in football. We know the Qatari Association with Human Rights Abuses and such. We know, for example, with the private investment fund of Saudi Arabia investing in Newcastle United, we know the links between the Saudi government and the Yemeni conflict. This has been brewing for years. and Again, I'm just thinking Manchester City owners, uh, part of the United Arab Emirates, that have significant influence on geopolitical stuff and have been instrumental, arguably, allegedly, in Putin's actions over the past few weeks. This idea that by getting rid of Abramovich, suddenly football can go through this deep cleanse, I think is a really lazy point to make from some people in the media that this will be the moment that football will be clean again. I think it's it's too far gone. And I tried to make this point about a week and a half ago that perhaps I might phrase it wrong, but this idea that people in football want to get moralistic now, like their money's cleaner than ours, quite frankly, looking at football, it's so swamped with dirty money, shady people and really underhand networks that I think you can't even do a root and branch reform of football it's so ingrained in the system that it's going to take a lot of a lot of doing it's going to take decades I think to kind of get to a stage where we can say well football's being cleaned up just simply because the level of investment across the entire world through certain funds from certain characters from certain nation states is so sophisticated, so developed that sports washing is in action. It's been in action for years and years and years and years. I mean, look at, I think Paris Saint-Germain are opening up a huge LA store, like an extension of like, like, like what we have in the city, in here in the city with really like big designer shops. PSG essentially getting that version in LA. This idea that by getting rid of, I mean, I won't remember the brand of it, but suddenly it will be fine, I think, yeah, is is remiss. I think 
we are looking at a very long-term problem. And perhaps in a way, the Abramovich thing is a watershed in kind of, we're starting to wake up to the fact that we have kind of soaked ourselves in blood money for a long, long time. Because now questions are, are rightly being asked, perhaps in the wrong way to the wrong people, but they're being asked nonetheless to people involved with certain regimes. So I think you had Eddie Howe yesterday after the Chelsea Newcastle game was asked about 81 people being killed by Saudi Arabia. And, you know, he was saying, I'm here to answer questions about the football, but that's the point, isn't it? It's so infused with football now, it's inescapable. So this idea that, and I've never subscribed to it, you have to keep politics out of football. I think politics is football and football can be politics. The two mix so in such a toxic way that we are all, we were always approaching this point. We were always getting to going to have a moment where football is going to realise that we have got into bed with the wrong people and it's too late. The important point to make as well is that sports washing isn't a new concept. And you you, you raised the point excellently that football is politics and politics is fo- football. And of course, that applies to literally every sport under the sun. I'm going to read a paragraph, the second paragraph from the 1936 Summer Olympics entry on Wikipedia. This is, I'm going to read it word for word. To outdo the 1932 Los Angeles Games, Reichsführer Adolf Hitler had a new 100,000 seat track and field stadium built, as well as six new gymnasiums and other smaller arenas. Like, sports washing has been a thing forever and yet i feel like now we're looking at 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 how the world is and we're going oh as you say zach the the horse truly has bolted like there was an opportunity to to keep sport in some senses cleaner than it is now i don't think anything under the sun is ever entirely clean in in any industry or any any part of the world anywhere to be completely honest i think it's a little bit impossible but yeah, like sports washing is such, such, such a big thing, such a big issue. And you're like, okay, so where do we go now? Because to go back to Chelsea, like for example, but before we started recording the podcast, it came to light that kind of there's a there's a very, very plausible bid from a Saudi Arabian consortium for Chelsea. And again, even though this this consortium isn't directly linked to the Saudi government in the way that Newcastle's owners are there are still obviously indirect links and then you ask the question well how much of an upgrade is it to go from Roman Abramovich to someone with indirect links to the head of the Saudi government and the Saudi government kind of commits atrocities of his own it's a big old mess isn't it for for football in the UK but I guess sport around the world and again that isn't I'll reiterate this again it obviously the important thing here is is, is people are being killed in Ukraine, like lives are being lost so senselessly in Ukraine. And it's terribly, terribly sad and horrible and horrific. And of course, football is, and sport is a mere side note. But I think it speaks to the extent of soft power that had been built up through sport. And I think that's the point that we're, we're really, really making here. Zach, we have been recording for just over an hour. And... I'm not sure what else I'd like to say today. So I guess I'm going to throw it over to you. Is there anything else on your mind that we haven't covered and we can go into? Without sounding like the ghost of Christmas past, 
um, this idea uh, with the sanctions that are being placed on Chelsea, you won't get into the specifics of it, but this idea that I think some fans of certain clubs should be sitting up and taking note of what can happen to a football club overnight, that it could essentially come within a whisker of financial ruin because of their owner being involved in some sort of nefarious activity. It could happen to their club. It could happen to any club that it takes one tiny little shift of the geopolitical pendulum and all of a sudden it will be Manchester City or Newcastle who have to face up to their owner's assets being frozen and by extension the club's assets being frozen. So if fans think this is an isolated incident, I don't think it is. I'm not saying it will happen next week. I'm not saying it's going to happen next month. But it's something I think football should keep an eye out for that the government have set a precedent now of putting in some really punitive sanctions on a football club because of their owner. And it could easily happen in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Because I, I made this point before we went on air that this idea that Roman Bramovich is going to be the only one ever sanctioned ever is not going to happen. You know, what he's doing is not exactly particularly different from what certain other owners and their states are doing. It only takes the kind of the shift towards X is now the ideological enemy of the West. We're now going to be going after these people. It takes that tiny shift in the world politics for that to happen and the sanctions and everything that comes with it to happen to another football club. So I think sports should begin this kind of idea of waking up to the fact that we are imbued with dirty money. We are imbued with people that shouldn't be owning football clubs if there was any sort of morality in football. And yeah, that's my piece on it. That yes, I think I completely agree that we Roman Abramovich should be sanctioned if there's a sufficient evidence, which the UK government claim there is. Then of course he should be sanctioned. I'm never going to dispute that. But this idea that it's going that's the only time it's ever going to happen, I think, would also be remiss. I think it sets a precedent for the next few decades. Should that ever happen, that this idea that it will never happen, never say never. I have one last question for you about Chelsea, um, and I guess we'll we'll do our what we're looking out for over the week ahead, and then we'll wrap up the show. Again, I was having this conversation. I was having a similar conversation with a Manchester City fan earlier today, and basically, I want to know how. I think it's been less of a problem for Chelsea because Abramovich has been institutionalised. It feels like he's been there forever. So the fact that he's owner of the club hasn't been such an epochal shift, as was the case with Man City, where the owners came in and it was like, well, this is this is a world apart. Of course, that was the case with Chelsea at the time, but it was a longer period of time ago. How do you reconcile supporting a football club and supporting that institution when you know the situation with its owners? Like, is it possible to say, look, Chelsea is a 100 and whatever number of years old institution it's about the badge. It's about the color. It's the, it's about the colors. It's about the team that's on the pitch. Is it possible to separate the two things? Because obviously, that's what kind of drives football fans. We're not mm. fans because of the people who own the clubs. Like no one at Burnley is is in love with ALK Capital. Certainly, no one <laughs> at West Ham is infatuated <laughs> with David Gold and David Sullivan. Um, or Karen Brady. Or Karen, well, she doesn't own it technically, but yeah, or Karen Brady. <laughs> but I guess the point, the point that I'm trying to get at yeah. is, is it possible to reconcile the two? I guess it is because people love Manchester City, people love Chelsea, people clearly love Newcastle. 
Um, yeah, just kind of what's your perspective on that? I think it's a difficult question for the higher up the pyramid you go because inevitably the characters get murkier. I think you can. I think I think people do just view the club as... It, it, the club means different things to different people. So when I started to work clubs were young, kind of had no idea that the guy that owns the club potentially is a war criminal. But this idea that you, you can't separate the two, I think you can. It's, it's in a way you have to be kind of deliberately naive kind of yeah of course you know that when you grow up a little bit you know that oh well the owner's not a really nice guy but I don't support the owner I support the team and you know you've got the Chelsea men's team the Chelsea youth team the Chelsea women's team it, it, it's more than just one thing I think it's a lot of different things and as well football clubs nowadays have become so sophisticated they have their own foundations so work the Chelsea Foundation do in the community as well it you're not just supporting the owner you're supporting everything that the club does and whether you can divorce the two I think is a difficult question the higher up you go but still I think it's possible to separate the two I think if we if everyone was geopolitically minded as as us and our listeners then I think there is a bit of deliberate naivety to be had that okay well I just have to settle with it because, quite frankly, I'm not going to change the ownership of Chelsea Football Club on my own. I'm not a billionaire. I can't just turn around and say, I've got no really bad ties. Let me own the club so then everyone supporting it can have a, a clear conscience. That can't happen. Rio I, certainly might suggest that it could, though. I just thought I'd put that out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see Rio Ferdinand raise £3 billion before Friday. Um, but... It is a difficult question. I think you can. I, I, I think if you support a club because of its owner, you're not supporting that. You're not in the right sport. I think inevitably, whatever football club you support, there's an emotional tie there, whoever owns it. And over the past few days, I've had to kind of reconcile the fact that potentially there might not be a Chelsea at all. That it could be that Chelsea's finances went down the toilet to a point where. Luckily, I don't, it won't happen, but it could have happened where we end up becoming like a barrel where the club has to fold and has to start again. I, th- I was listening to a Chelsea podcast, essentially, that the club will always go on. There was a Chelsea before Roman Abramovich. There's obviously a Chelsea afterwards. Whatever that Chelsea looks like, I don't know. And I think that's the way you've got to approach it. That There's always going to be a Chelsea there, hopefully, providing it's solvent. And whether it's fifth in the league or top of the league, or if it's in the championship or in League Two, National League, wherever, you support it. And whatever comes your way is a vicissitude of life. And that's the way I think we've all got to be, that whatever, whoever owns it, whatever circumstances we're in, you support the club at the end of the day. And perhaps our time at the top with under Roman's billions is over. I. I'm a bit more optimistic. I don't think that's massively the case. But if it is, it is. And I still support the club anyway. It's. I'm sure the same would happen with you with West Ham, right? If West Ham were bought out by a, a mysterious Russian billionaire who refuses to say who his name is, but claims he's owned a club for 20 years, and say West Ham winning several league titles in a row, and then all of a sudden that rug is pulled, and it, you'd still support the club. Anyone would. It's... It means a lot more than just a couple of titles or having a rich guy own the club. And 
I think so. I think it was Nick Candy who made the point. Perspective Chelsea buyer who's also a Tory donor involved in Partygate. There we go. Got a bit of politics in there. Um, he said, "Look, you can never have one person own the club. It's not for one person. It's for a community. It's for its fans, and the fans will decide what the club looks like and what the what the club is now, before, and forevermore." So. Yeah, long, I know it's a really long ramble, but essentially I think you can divorce the two because the club is eternal and the custodians, the owners pass by. And I think that's where we should probably end today's episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the show again. I'd like to go back to the start and say we are genuinely sorry for not being around for the past two months. Um our excuse is rubbish. We just we were just very busy. So sorry again. But thank you so much for getting to the end of this one. We really, really do appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at LukeJames underscore 32. You can follow Zach at ZG1999 underscore. And you can follow at Midfield Politic for the podcast account. As always, when we get to the end of the show, I sign off with the same phrase and I'll do it once again today. Stay safe and keep voting. Thank you.